Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. You've got your regular hosts, Jeff and Brian, with you today. Today we're going to continue and conclude a real short series, a two-parter, on questions related to Christianity. And as we mentioned back in part one, you know, from time to time we'll gather questions on a particular topic and share answers with our listeners in hopes they would benefit from those questions and answers as well. Uh, and Brian, you know, certainly you know, the topic of Christianity is, is pretty broad. So we've got, you know, lots of interesting perspectives and questions, etc. We tried to deal with some of the more basic ones last time. Today, we'll kind of deal with some of the more advanced ones you know, in the time we have. Brian, do you want to say anything to get us rolling today? No, I say let's just dive right in. All right. So you get the first one from David. Is the faith of a professing Christian in Jesus Christ that is not great enough to overcome addiction or an ongoing habitual sin over many years, a faith that's great enough to gain true salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? I personally do not think so. As Christians, God calls us to be overcomers. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I guess on the surface, we might all wonder somebody that has a problem with any kind of sin. Maybe they're a drunkard, maybe they're addicted to drugs, and they continue to relapse or they continue to commit that sin. And, you know, I don't think it's unnatural for us to wonder, well, are they really, do they really have the kind of faith that God's looking for? However, I would just caution us, if we were to think of it in that way, to be careful not to be what we would say judgmental. I mean, no doubt, we should always seek to overcome sin, but struggling to overcome a habitual sin does not necessarily disqualify us, or it doesn't say that we don't have the right kind of faith that will therefore prevent us from being saved and spending eternity in heaven. And I think it's important to understand that. Now, what does the Bible say, right? That's the key point. Well, I think there's an important lesson on forgiveness from Jesus that kind of helps to answer this for us. So, I'll call our listeners over, if you have your Bibles handy, to Luke chapter 17. And here, Jesus is asked about repetitive sin that somebody commits against us, let's say. So say somebody is sinning against you. Maybe they strike you. Maybe they yell at you. Whatever. There's many ways that people can sin against us. So notice what Jesus says. Luke 17, beginning in verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now notice here, it first says that the sinner repents. So the sinner plays a role in this, right? And of course, when you think about the word repent, it means that they're turning away from their sin and turning back to God, right? They're sorry for what they've done, all those kinds of things. And also notice that this person Jesus is referencing sins repetitively, right? Seven times in a day, he says. Now, if you go and look at another account of a similar thought from Jesus over in Matthew chapter 18, notice what he says beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. So 490 times. Why is Jesus saying it that way? Well, I think we can reasonably conclude he's making an exaggeration to prove a point, and that there is really no limit in the number of times that we forgive somebody that sins against us as long as they repent. So even though Jesus is talking about in these two passages, you know, forgiving one another or forgiving our brother or sister that sins against us, we really learn, I think, an important principle on forgiveness, and that is that when somebody repents, they should be forgiven. In fact, God has also promised to forgive us of any sins that we repent of. So one passage that talks about this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So 
Jesus makes it clear there's no limitation in the number of times we can be forgiven. And you notice nowhere in here does he say, well, you know, if they keep sinning, it's obvious they have a heart problem and they're not going to be saved if they sin too much. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches the opposite. So once again, going back to the question, just because someone is weak and struggles to overcome sins like addiction, it does not mean they are not worthy. In fact, one final passage I'll, I'll reference that I think helps us to understand what God thinks about someone who turns from their sin can be found over in Ezekiel chapter 18. Jeff, you want to read that for us? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. But if a wicked man turns from all of his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. So God makes it very clear here. Once we repent and are forgiven, you know, and confess it to God, of course, and our sins are forgiven, God doesn't remember it anymore. And that's hard for us because sometimes people commit sins against us and it's hard to just put it out of our mind. But I think the bigger principle here is God forgives. God expects us to forgive. In fact, if you go read in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus talks a lot about, especially when it comes to forgiveness, if we refuse to forgive others, God's going to refuse to forgive us. So I guess, Jeff, ultimately, yes, God is the judge, but we still need to be careful about making our own judgments about somebody being worthy or not. And let's just not start judging once again because of the repetition or habitual nature of sin that they may not be sincere in their faith. Right. Well, and you can also easily see how the person themselves could fall into a couple, you know, bad attitudes. One is like, oh, I'm struggling, and it's just I can't overcome, and it's like, you know, how could God ever forgive me, you know, self-defeating, right? right? And the other's like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal, okay, fine, uh, yeah, I know I do it, I'll slip into it, but, you know, I'll repent, when I'm, uh, quote, unquote, ask for forgiveness when I'm done, uh, yeah. So, you know, you got a couple, you know, bad positions that you can get yourself into, you know, mentally, as opposed to saying, yeah, I know, I got this problem, I'm going to keep trying. Yeah, I, I slip and I fall, but I'm going to keep, you know, getting back up and keep on persisting. There you go. Keep after it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I like that thought. All right, Jeff. So the next question comes from Art for you. And Art says, would you marry a Christian and a Catholic? Everyone dances around it. What are your thoughts on the subject? Yeah, well, and the question, you know, certainly is based on the uh, uh, underlying perception or perspective that Catholics are not Christians. And I know many Catholics that would, you know, vehemently disagree, you know, with that assertion. And, you know, certainly we could spend an entire podcast, Brian, you know, talking about Catholicism. In fact, we did that, and I would refer our uh, listeners back to that podcast more focused on Catholicism back in April of 2023. That was episode 163, Traditions of Men Versus the Word of God. That happened to be part two that we focused on Catholicism. So... I think we need to pause for a moment and sort of, you know, tease apart the question. First of all, what constitutes a Christian, right? And how God views all the various religious denominations today. So let's deal with that for a few moments. And then we'll come back around to ask the question, you know, should a true Christian marry a, you know, non-true Christian, whatever denomination they might be. Okay. So for starters, what constitutes a Christian? So if you look at the scriptures, there are certain steps that a person you know, goes through in order to become a Christian. Some of these steps, many religious groups will agree with. A few, they will definitely disagree with, which renders them not being true Christians. For starters, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the sinless Son of God, died for our sins. Acts 10, 43. Acts 16, 31. Most religious groups, absolutely. Faith, belief, etc. Okay, good start. Step two. That true belief will produce repentance, as we mentioned in the previous question. Acts 2, 38, 3, 19. Uh, even, you know, even religious groups that talk about faith only, I think in generally they would tend to grant that, well, yeah, I mean, a true faith, you're actually going to repent of your sins. Okay, good. That was step two. Step three, that kind of repentance should produce in us the desire to publicly confess Jesus as the Son of God. That's required. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Acts 8, 37, Romans 10, 9 and 10, 1 John 4, 15. 
And some religious groups may be okay with that. Then we come to the next one that most groups will deny. That as a result of our humility, our faith, you know, our repentance, etc., that we will submit to what the New Testament scriptures refer to as baptism, immersion in water, in order to have our sins forgiven. Uh, Acts 22.16, Galatians 3.27, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, 1 Peter 3.21, Acts 2.38. That's the big stumbling block for a lot of religious groups. Immersion in water of a believer, not a child, in order to have our sins washed away. So right there, that, that in my mind, that, that, that's the big discriminator, if you will, between religious groups that claim to be Christian and the pattern of the New Testament. Now, that's just the beginning with baptism. The need to live faithfully, the desire to remain faithful at all times, Romans 6, verse 4. The possibility of sinning and falling away and the need to be obedient. And there again, we have some religious groups that teach, you know, once saved, always saved, which is false according to the scriptures. Certainly, we could add even more about uh, living daily as a Christian, how to do that, or sins associated with it, worshiping God with fellow Christians, etc. But we can immediately see a problem in our religious world. Lots and lots of groups all claim to, you know, consist of Christians or claim to teach a plan of salvation that results in Christians, but just are not following the teaching as specified in the New Testament. And that, you know, that's like a you know broad net, you know, religious groups that will say faith only, once saved, always saved, uh, religious groups that teach an allegiance to some central head like the Pope, or a, a, a central uh, um, person who started the church like Luther or Wesley or Joseph Smith. You have religious groups that, you know, extend um, their practices to things unauthorized in the scriptures, like having women preachers or having, uh, you know, practicing homosexuals as part of the membership and or the leaders of the congregation, religious groups that practice modern-day miracles, etc. And all these different divisions, basically condemned by Jesus John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Brian, you want to read that for our listeners, please? So John 17, beginning in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, here, of course, this is before Jesus dies on the cross. He's near the end of his ministry. He's near the end of his life. And his plea here is for unity, that we all be one. And of course, as you mentioned, and we've talked about, that can only be achieved by us following the same standard, being united in the truth, and so forth. And so Jesus did not want to see his children divided, and he knew that that was something that would, in fact, happen. True. And, of course, you know, Paul goes on to echo that sentiment of being united. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Yeah, and writing to the Corinthians, you know, they had a lot of problems. You know, one of which was starting to divide amongst themselves which Paul basically condemns. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, by my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, Oh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, condemning religious division, and particularly in this in this case, rallying around individuals. Which I mean, can I draw a parallel with rallying around the Pope, or rallying around Luther, or Wesley, or Joseph Smith? Uh, a similar passage, uh, Philippians chapter one, verse twenty-seven talked about, you know, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together. 
of the faith of the gospel. In fact, as a, as a little bit of a side comment, you know, within, you know, churches of Christ, you know, of which we are, conservative churches of Christ, some might call us, you know, non-denominational. And there certainly are various religious groups out there that call themselves non-denominational. You know, I would take what the Bible says and go even one step further to say, in many ways, we are anti-denominational. Now, our listeners may say, well, whoa, that's, that's a whole lot of material just related to marriage. Well, I wanted to kind of lay a foundation because I don't recall, and maybe we did and I just forgot, but I don't recall in part one if we ever pause to define what Christianity is, right? So this, these are questions about Christianity. Well, what is Christianity? Well, humanly viewed, Christianity is a broad collection of various religious groups, Catholics and Protestants and Jehovah's Witnesses and some might even extend that to Mormons and etc. But as, as we see from the scriptures, you know, true Christianity, you know, the true church, true belief, etc., is a lot more uh, exclusive or uh, limited, if you will, than that very broad view. It takes more than just belief in Jesus, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Now, with all of that groundwork, you know, let's go back to the original, you know, question. And let me let me modify it. Slightly, you know, should a faithful New Testament Christian marry a member of some other Christian denomination? And I guess you could also extend that to, you know, should they marry a you know, member of some other religious body? Like, you know, should they marry a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or, you know, even a, even a non-believer like an agnostic? So to get to the essence of the answer... Is entering into a marriage between a Christian, non-Christian, ill-advised? Definitely. You know, definitely sets the stage for you know possible conflict, argument, turmoil. You know, passages like Luke chapter twelve verses fifty-one through fifty-three, Second Corinthians chapter six verses fourteen through sixteen. Uh, you know, does it often start the Christian down a path of forsaking their faith for the sake of their relationship with their non-Christian spouse? Well, yes, unfortunately. And really, Brian, in, in today's society, having a working marriage between two faithful Christians is hard enough. You know, when they're you know dedicated to following the same rule book. Even harder if they're following different rule books or have different perspectives. But the question I think revolves around is it you know ill advised? Yes. Is it sinful? Does not appear to be so. According to First Corinthians chapter seven verses twelve through sixteen. Now, admittedly, and, and you know, within that passage, you can look it up. Our listeners can look it up. First Corinthians chapter seven. You know, if such marriages were sinful, then Paul would have said, "Yeah, you need to divorce." But no, he talks about them remaining together. Now, some might view Second Corinthians six verses fourteen through sixteen as teaching it is a sin. But now we have the interesting Bible, uh, the challenge of properly interpreting the Bible by looking at all the Bible says on a subject. Basically, that's the, the topic of harmonizing various passages that teach on the same subject. And of course, 2 Corinthians 6 would have to be harmonized back with 1 Corinthians 7, as we already uh, mentioned. Uh, in fact, the, the believers commanded not to divorce their unbelieving mate, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 13. So, sinful, inherently sinful? No. Uh, Ill-advised? Definitely. Because there's all kinds of problems, Brian, when, when you actually dig into it. Potential areas of conflict. You know, what, hap what happens on Sunday? You know, with the family, right? If, if one spouse wants to go to worship and the other spouse doesn't, what are the unbelievers or the non-Christians' views on things like abortion, drinking, smoking, cursing, etc.? Things that would show up in the home life. If the uh, the unbeliever non-Christian is the wife, what are her views regarding submitting to the husband's headship? Conversely, if the unbeliever is the husband, will the wife be strong enough in her faith to disobey his headship when he demands things contrary to God's law? What about the children? Where are they going to go? What kind of religious upbringing are they going to have? How about the unbelievers, the influence of the unbelievers' parents on their, on your children, uh, their grandchildren? What if the unbeliever doesn't accept the Bible's teaching regarding marriage and the exclusiveness and permanency of marriage? Anyway, bottom line, Brian, you know, such marriage should be strongly discouraged, especially if the other person is strongly dedicated to their particular 
religion or i guess in the case of an agnostic or atheist they're non-religion brian any thoughts yeah, very good answer, Jeff. You know, I appreciate you really taking the time to establish what true Christianity is because it's so critical for many of the biblical principles we talk about. And in fact, the very next question will also include that element. Okay. So, Brian, you get the next question submitted anonymously. Uh, they did not put their name in, but the form allows the person to give their religious affiliation, which they did, in this case, Seventh-day Adventist. And so they write in, Since we as Christians are supposed to act and be like Jesus, then I am confused at why we are not doing anything to help the Christian refugees that make it over to this country. I cannot locate any organization that is helping any that have made it. I am sure the Muslim refugees are getting loads of help from the Muslims that are here. Now, what can we do for the Christians, since these are the ones who would have had their heads cut off if they did not leave the Middle East? Is there an organization that I could get in touch with? There you go, Brian. Interesting question. Yeah, especially because, you know, this challenge of people leaving one country and going to another has been happening since really the beginning of time. People migrate, people escape hostile situations in certain parts of the world. And so this is not a new problem, right? This has been going on for quite some time. And certainly our heart goes out to people who are escaping hostile situations. I guess, you know, we have to balance what's appropriate as it relates to them coming into the country. There's a lot of consideration, but just kind of sticking to the main question here is, you know, are there organizations that will help these kinds of people? And is the church one of those organizations? So let's just start out by saying, no doubt, the Bible provides clear guidance on how to help Christians that are in need of help. And Christians are certainly worthy of help. But Jeff, as you really did a good job of laying the foundation when it comes to the word Christian, I just want to touch on that again because, you know, there's a lot of confusion about who a Christian is because there are many religions and denominations that people refer to as Christian religions. So for instance, just in general, if you go to a dictionary or an encyclopedia, it'll say, well, you know, if it's not Islam or it's not Hinduism, then it's a Christian religion. And so there are many religions that are often lumped under that general term of Christian, including Catholicism, you know, and Protestant religions, as mentioned. But in the Bible, if you look at just the simple Greek definition of Christian, it's just a follower of Christ. So, you know, on the surface, we could take this as any religion that follows any of Christ's teaching. But we should ask, is this an accurate way to understand the true definition of Christian? And it's like, well, why are we making such a big deal out of this? Well, because the Bible teaches us the true definition of Christian is someone who follows all of God's law without any modification. And just one passage that kind of highlights this is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, if you were to read down through verse 23, it talks about people that say, Lord, we've done all these great things in your name. And Jesus says, depart, I never knew you. Why does he say that? Because they're not doing the will of the Father in heaven. So when we define Christian, we have to define it in the way that the Bible does. Why am I making this distinction? Well, number one is the Bible does provide clear guidance on how true Christians can be helped by the church. So then how about helping those who are not Christians? How about benevolence, right? Which is a term that we find that just simply means acts of kindness, you know, being charitable. I mean, we know when we read the scriptures that benevolence is one of the works of the church, but is this something the church can provide? Should we be helping non-Christians? Well, to answer these questions, we have to just quickly look at what the Bible teaches about benevolence and the difference between what we can do as individual Christians and the church can do. Now, many in the religious world today have no problem using the treasury of the church. So this would be the money that's given on the first day of the week, according to passages like 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2, using that treasury to help anyone in society. And this is often referred to as what we would call general benevolence. Now, without biblical authority, they think, well, if good comes of it, you know, we might say the end justifies the mean, then, then why wouldn't that be okay? Well, because this is kind of a misguided concept of love. I mean, if you are accomplishing good by doing something contrary to God's word, then can you really call that good? Well, no. And so therefore, people will justify using the treasury to help just anyone because it accomplishes good. But 
does the Lord want us to help non-Christian people? Or we might also ask, are we demonstrating a lack of love by not helping them with money from the treasury? Well, if we kind of closely examine, once again, what does the Bible teach? It clearly tells us the Lord does want us to help all men, but we only have the authority to use the treasury to help needy saints or Christians. We also learn that the Bible talks about two different kinds of benevolence, individual and church. So individually, the scriptures teach us that we are to help all men, as mentioned. And this would include, you know, like our family, could even be other brethren, or anyone else in need. In fact, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, we're taught to show honor for our grandparents or parents by taking care of them. In fact, if you read on in verse 8, it says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, we are told, Let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. So these two sections of Scripture teach us that individually, yes, we should help all men. Now, as for the church, there are many examples. Let's look at just one. In Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, we read about how the saints in Macedonia and Achaia financially helped poor Christians or saints in Jerusalem. And so from this passage and others, you know, we are given an approved example of how Christians help other Christians. And so therefore, we should follow the pattern and do the same today. So I guess to wrap this particular thought up, we also learned that the church treasury was not used to help non-Christians because it's an individual responsibility. And, you know, Jeff, I guess this is probably one of the biggest distinctions between what we see that the Bible teaches us and what we see throughout the religious world today, and that is many churches have no problem using the money that they collected from the individual members to help everyone, because after all, it accomplishes good. But you know, as it relates to organizations assisting those who are in need, it has to be a non-religious organization, and they can help anybody they want. There's all kinds of people in society that create organizations that do a lot of good, and that's great, but not the church. The churches, as an organization, once again, can only assist Christians. A final consideration here, Jeff, and then I'll turn it over to you, is that, you know, when you think about people that migrate from one country to another— we have a problem here in the United States where a lot of people come in here illegally. In other words, they're not authorized to come in because they don't have a passport or they don't have a visa. And so they sneak into the country. So then we should ask, well, should we enable them to remain in a country illegally by assisting them? Because there are many religious organizations in this country that help people that have come in illegally. Well, we certainly don't want them to perish. And so, you know, we could argue that we should provide them with like water and food. I wouldn't argue there's any problem with that. But there's a difference between doing that and harboring them or providing a way for them to remain permanently in the country while they break the law. I mean, that's just another matter that we have to consider. So anyhow, Jeff's just some thoughts about you know, an issue that can be complicated and certainly tugs at our hearts, but we just have to be rational by seeing what the Bible teaches on it. Right. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, there are a lot of, I'll call, I'll say just, you know, well-intentioned, soft-hearted people, you know, as part of a religious organization that want to reach out to the needy, reach out to the poor, the homeless, you know, reach out to their community, provide all kinds, uh, you know, as part of the work of the church all kinds of um, assistance, you know, in terms of, you know, food and clothing, et cetera, to the general populace. And, you know, understand well-intentioned, no argument there. But in terms of what the scriptures say, the work and responsibility of the local congregation, again, since it is, you know, Jesus's church, you know, he's, he's the head, we should be, you know, following, you know, as, as members of the body. You know, we need to limit ourselves to what he wants us to do. And if that's what he had wanted us to do, he would have said so. But as, as we've said, you know, from the scriptures, such kind of, you know, general benevolence to the population as a whole, individual Christians, absolutely. But is it the work of the church for general benevolence? You know, not according to the scriptures. So, yeah, Brian, appreciate the time you spent on sort of making that distinction, especially since, again, from a Christianity perspective, a lot of religious groups, you know, do fall into that category of, you know, being well-intentioned and providing general benevolence, which is not authorized by the scriptures.
Yeah, and I don't want to be trite, but there's an old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, unfortunately, yep, that is true. All right, next question for you, Jeff, comes from Bunny, and she says, Cornelius was a soldier, but he believed in Jesus and his teachings. He was baptized and remained a Roman soldier. My question is about Christians and going to war. That's kind of a broad question as well, isn't it? <laughs> so. Oh, it is. And it's got several different dimensions. Now, certainly, if you want to broaden it to include Christians and fighting or personal self-defense, taking another's life, and, you know, even things like the death penalty or, you know, serving as a policeman or a soldier, etc. And basically, the answer is, <laughs> it's one of those, uh, this, uh, I'll, I'll use the word nuanced. Yeah, somewhat nuanced, because as you go through the scriptures, there's a lot of verses that deal with kind of different aspects uh, that you kind of have to bring them together, look at them as a composite, as a whole, uh, to get to the right answer. Okay, so let me just kind of take tick it down through about uh, seven or eight or nine uh, specifics. Christians are commanded not to fight, in a physical sense, to enlarge Christ's kingdom. You know, just like the citizens of an earthly kingdom would be expected to do. Within the Muslim world, you know, you could call that jihad, right? Fight to enlarge the kingdom. John 18, verse 36. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Christians are commanded not to fight in that way. Uh, Christians are also commanded not to fight, again, in a physical sense, uh, because, you know, they are a bully, or because they lose their temper, or they want to avenge themselves. Okay, so that's forbidden. You know, Matthew 5, verse 9. Romans 12, 17 through 21, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 2, James 3, 17. Christians are commanded not to fight, again, in a physical sense, to defend themselves from religious persecution. Matthew 5, verse 39, Luke 22, 49 through 51, Matthew 26, verse 52. Now, I might, so you know, can Christians band together, go purchase a bunch of weaponry, and, you know, fight off persecution. Well, not according to the scriptures. That said, however, you know, they can resort to using, you know, civil law and authorities to defend themselves from persecution. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 37. Uh, Acts 22, verse 25. Governments, on the other hand, are indeed permitted to take vengeance on evildoers, including using the sword a method of execution, capital punishment, death penalty. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Christians are encouraged to live peacefully with others. 1 Peter 3, 11, Romans 12, 8. Christians are permitted to fight. Now, this may sound contradictory. Christians are permitted to fight, again, in a physical sense, to defend themselves or their family. Luke 22, 36. 1 Timothy 5, 8. So if you take all of those together, mush them together, and then start to you know, get the big picture, generally speaking, Christians tend to be more passive. You know, not going out, causing a ruckus, causing an argument, picking a fight as individuals. Certainly not going out you know, under the flag of Christianity and going to go out and beat up the heathen, right? Um, Although at the same time, in a limited sense, for self-defense, you know, like with a family, for instance, uh, and certainly the government can go out and carry the sword for you know, punishing evildoers. So things like being a policeman, military, uh, defending the country, defending the community, defending the country, etc., you know, would be legitimate uh, activities you know, as part of civil government. Although, Brian, I might add pretty quickly that from a personal perspective, you know, joining the police, joining the military, honestly, from a, a Christian perspective, that likely as a career choice um, may need to be discouraged as a career choice. Uh, certainly within both of those cultures, you know, you're being exposed in many ways to evil in a lot of ways. You know, the policeman out on the beat, on patrol, you know, confronting evildoers and all kinds of, you know, profanity and, you know, the scum of the earth, so to speak. 
uh, you know, likewise within the military, you know, language, drinking, uh, fornication, etc. Uh, not to mention that, especially within the military, you know, basically, if you are a soldier, the military owns you, and you know they 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 will command you. They'll tell you what to do, when to do, where to go, how to do it, whatever, which could very easily interfere with your obligations as a Christian. And now you're put into a, a particular uh, particular conflict of who are you going to obey? You know, are you going to obey your commander, or are you going to obey your commander? <laughs> military commander versus, you know, Jesus. So it puts you into, into a very, likely puts you into a very bad situation. Anyway, quick answer, you know, what about Christians and going to war? Kind of nuance. Somewhat, uh, Christians tend to be somewhat uh, more passive. Um, can join police, military. Although as a career choice, that's probably not the best. Brian, again, it's kind of a nuanced thing. Any Any perspectives you want to add? Well, you're so right. I mean, no doubt we could have an episode just on this because to your point, it's nuanced in the sense that let's say you join the military and they're going to fight a war that you don't agree with. Or, you know, my mother gave me a book a couple of years ago I read, which was excellent, called The Churches of Christ During the Civil War. And it was talking about all of the challenges that they had to deal with when you have the North against the South. So, you know, fighting within the same country and killing brethren. And it's just like, yeah, this can be really, really nuanced. And so I appreciate you just really covering the fundamentals. And then, you know, we all have to consider these things and say what aligns with God's word and be careful not to be extreme in our positions. I like that. Okay, so the next question is anonymous, but from someone who identified, self-identified as a Church of Christ member. And they wrote in, in reference to Revelation 2, verses 24 through 29, which is one of the congregations in Revelation 2, as well as the church at Sardis, Revelation 3, verses 4 through 6, they ask, can a true Christian worship acceptably as an individual at a congregation, knowing the congregation as a whole accepts and tolerates sin, you know, unscriptural marriage, uh, etc. Any any other sin within the congregation itself. Staying in a saved condition because I don't personally, you know, individually accept or believe or endorse or practice those things. Yet I have to attend there to worship on the first day of the week because there are no other true or sound New Testament churches of Christ near me. Can I worship in truth as an individual within the congregational body that does not worship? in truth, and still be acceptable to God. Thank you for helping me to scripturally understand this question. Yeah, that, that's a good question, Brian. It really is. I like it because we could all find ourselves in a situation where we're worshiping with a church that is, as they mentioned, accepting sin or not dealing with the sin. And so, yeah, thought-provoking question that really should be considered by us all. And so well, let's just kind of look at the two references that this person submitted as it relates to the churches mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so, you know, what this, I believe the reason why they provided these two references is because both address congregations or churches who had members in them that were practicing sin, and they had members in there who were not practicing sin, right? So it's kind of exactly what they, sounds like they're saying their situation is. Well, for the first reference, you know, for the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, we need to go back to verse 18. They reference 24 through 29, but you really need to read 18 through 29. And so I have this listed. We won't read the entire section, but I do want to highlight a few key points there. So once again, if you're making notes, Revelation 2 verses 18 through 29 really kind of gives us the complete context about Jesus' message to this church at Thyatira. So, Revelation 2, he talks about, you know, to the church of the Thyatira, I know your works, verse 19, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. So, he's complimenting them. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So here you have, once again, good works being done in verse 19, and then you have some sin that's not being properly dealt with in verse 20. Verse 21, Jesus says, 
and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Now skip down to verse 24. Now I say uh, to you, I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So he's kind of saying, hang in there. I know there are problems there. Okay, now let's go to the reference in Revelation chapter 3. And this is another one where they mentioned 4 through 6, but we need to go back to verse 1 to get the complete context. So verse 1, Jesus is talking to the church at Sardis. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. And then he says in verse 4, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So that's an important statement because, once again, it emphasizes the fact that, yes, there were some who were sinning. As a church overall, they were not doing everything God wanted them to do. but as he says in verse 4, there were some that had not, quote-unquote, defiled their garments, and they are worthy, according to Jesus. So, you know, once again, both of these references would seem to indicate that Jesus recognizes that there will be some faithful and unfaithful in a church. And I think we could all logically conclude that. Now, what he does not tell them to do is to leave the church, but instead notice in, in Revelation 2.22 and in, ver- in chapter 3, verse 3, he encourages those who are sending to repent. He also does not say that those who are faithful should just accept the fact that there are sinners and that it's acceptable to continue to worship as if everything is all right. I mean, he wants them to stand for the truth. He always wants us to point out sin, especially if it's in the church. And so, you know, a good example of what the Lord expects can be found in the church at Corinth. And Jeff, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind reading this. This is one where we really kind of do need to read all seven verses, but You know, Jesus is talking in 1 Corinthians 5 about a a man among them who was having sexual relations with his father's wife, and they were doing nothing about it. And so Paul rebukes them for their inaction. So Jeff, if I get you to read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 7, let's see what's going on here, what Paul says about it. Right, okay. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, already judged him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Pretty, uh, pretty blunt and to the point, Brian. It really is, and it's such a good section to teach us that, you know, he expected them to address the sinner and to put him out of the church unless he repented. It's not acceptable to allow someone to remain in a church, and as it mentions there in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's just going to make the situation worse. Sin spreads, you accept sin. All of those things are consequences of not dealing with something that should be dealt. So, Going back to the question, you know, hopefully, if you have a church where there is a sinner, maybe multiple sinners, the congregation as a whole must deal with it and must deal with it appropriately. Now, if there are several Christians who are tolerating the sin and refusing to practice what we would call church discipline, including the elders, if there are elders, then it often leads to division. And I think we would all agree that's not what you want. Now, as Jesus stated in those passages that we read in Revelation, he would rather that those standing for the truth reason with those who are sinners and get them to repent. And if they will not accept the truth and repent, then as we just read in 1 Corinthians 5, they may need to be asked to leave the church. Or if 
they refused to address the sin. Let's say the church in Corinth didn't, and in fact, they did. If you read 2 Corinthians, they did the right thing, and they dealt with the sin. But if a church refuses to deal with open sin, then you may have to leave that church. Now, the final thing here is this person says, well, like, what if this is the only church in town, so to speak, that's following the New Testament pattern? And I appreciate how they said that, because that's how we determine if they're the Lord's church. Well, you know, if you're the only person in a congregation who's standing for the truth and there's not one or more faithful brethren that would leave with you, right, if you had no choice but to leave to start a new work, then maybe you continue at least for a while to remain and try to get those in sin to see the error of their ways. I mean, that's always what you want to have happen is to reason calmly with people, get them to see where they're in sin and get them to repent. But if that doesn't work, I mean, you may literally need to move. And as drastic as that sounds, do you really want to continue long-term in a church that's practicing sin? Probably not, right? So it may have to geographically move to another city, as difficult as that may be. So, Jeff, another one of these questions that there are some difficult choices and answers, but we just have to stick to the fundamentals of what the Bible teaches us. Right. Well, and, and in some ways, I, I kind of go back to the basics. There, you know, there are a lot of... There are a lot of religious groups out there that what we just got through talking about is like totally foreign in concept. You know, they may, you know, accept into their, you know, religious uh, group, if you will, you know, a variety of people. And, you know, if if they are sinning and haven't been repenting, well, you know, quote unquote, that's between them and God. But we'll still consider them a, a valued member of our congregation. Or perhaps they, you know, say, well, you know, it sounds too harsh, you know, too judgmental. I mean, after all, Matthew 7, judge not. Um, and the concept of congregational discipline, you know, to include withdrawal of fellowship is a foreign concept. Well, that's not what Jesus wants his church to do. So I just want to, you know, make that emphasis to, you know, drive that point home. Yeah, that's such an important point because you're right. If you're not dealing with the, the, as you say, basics or fundamentals of allowing someone that's in sin to be a member, boy, that, then you're not going to deal with much larger issues, most likely. Right. Well, and, you know, just to put a you know, slightly finer point on it, you know, right now, you know, highly controversial, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus IA, you know, whatever, where, you know, a lot of congregations are struggling with, you know, people, quote unquote, coming out of the closet or being, you know, practicing homosexuals, etc. And are they going to allow these people to remain in the congregation or not? And congregations are splitting over that. Uh, are they going to allow them to assume positions of leadership, you know, as, as priests or bishops or elders or whatever term, you know, they, they locally use. And a lot of congregations are, are dividing over that as well. And again, you know, how we deal with sin within the congregation is one of those key discriminators between, you know, true Christianity and the true church versus, you know, man-made religious denominations. Yeah, that is so true. All right, Jeff, so the next question for you comes from Joel, and he asks, what are the challenges of being a Christian, and how can one overcome it? Uh, yeah, Brian, sometimes we get questions to the website that are, you know, the, the question is a simple, easy question. The answer, though, is like, oh, there's so much to it. It's involved. Yeah, this is one of those. So if, if, if I answer a simple question with a simple answer, for starters, you know, what are the challenges of being a Christian? Then in, in, in one word, sin. You know, what's the challenge of being a Christian? Sin. You know, temptations to do what we shouldn't, you know, what God said not to, or, or temptations not to do what God said we should do. And, of course, those kinds of sin, challenges, temptations, if you will, come from a whole variety of sources. I mean, from within ourselves, you know, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, you know, Eve in the garden, tempted by Satan. Uh, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Uh, we'll see a little bit later on that those three things I emphasize, good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, that pattern, those three things, we see repeated. Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 10. 
three very similar avenues of temptation that Satan tried on Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 names those three avenues. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the physical desires, the lust of the eyes, things that look pretty good, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. Uh, in fact, some of this we see you know, illustrated in the parable of the sower, you know, internal sources of challenges. If you have Matthew 15, sorry, Matthew 13, verse 22, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So a lot of the challenges, if you will, you know, come within ourselves. Some of the challenges, though, are external, like our family. Brian, if you would, please, can you read Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37? Sure. Here it says, Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. All right. So certainly religious division within one's family, within one's household, you know, can be a source, uh, can be a challenge. Right. If you become a faithful Christian and the rest of your family is Muslim, you know, to, to cite an extreme example, or agnostics or atheists. Uh, or member of some other you know, odd you know, religious group. That can definitely be a, a challenge. Overt persecution can be a challenge. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, going back to the parable of the sower, verses 20 and 21, he received the word on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So, you know, we have external challenges, if you will. You know, we have challenges related to persevering. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 talks about, let us not grow, be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Similarly, you know, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, but ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Sometimes the challenge is persistently obeying God week, you know, day after week, after month, after year you know, for, for the long, long haul. Overcoming, and then, then, you know, that's just sort of like broad categories and a lot of details within each category we could talk about, uh, you know, a whole podcast of that, Brian. Uh, but at least as a, you know, collection of challenges, how do we overcome them? Well, I think in some ways it may start you know, when we talk about Christianity, it may start with rejecting the very comforting but false doctrine of once saved, always saved. Meaning, if I really subscribe to once saved, always saved, you know, I'm not all that concerned about, you know, all these various challenges. Because, you know, after all, you know, I'm saved, I'll be saved, you know, in some ways, you know, no big deal. Well, that is very comforting. It also happens to be wrong. And I think we have you know, podcasts and certainly website material on that. So, you know, recognize it is a challenge, recognize we need to do something about it. Some simpler things, you know, drawing closer to God. How do you do that, Jeff? Well, Bible study, you know, get into the scriptures, you know, understand, you know, what uh, you know, God's expectations are, understand what the, you know, joys of heaven might be like, you know, drawing closer to God through Bible study, through prayer, uh, drawing closer to fellow faithful Christians in a local congregation, for instance like we've been talking about, you know, adding to your, you know, faith, a number of things. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11, very good text for encouraging us, you know, to add to our faith things like virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly kindness, etc. In fact, verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly unto the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. In fact, Brian, we did like a nine-part uh, podcast back in October and November of 2022. 
Yeah, if you go to our website under the uh, podcast uh, button on the homepage, scroll down to the uh, topical uh, index part of that page, uh, podcast page, uh, under Christian Living, uh, you'll find that nine-part uh, podcast, which uh, will definitely give you a whole lot. I mean, you know, nine podcasts, you know, more so than uh, a lot more material for our audience to avail themselves of. Yeah, and we did that series with our evangelist, Alan Hitchin. He's actually written a companion booklet you can get on our website as well if you'd like. It's a really nice reference, and he does a nice job walking through that. So, yeah, appreciate your good scripturally based advice for that question. Yep, yep, yep. Like I said, it, it is a broad question, a, broad, a simple broad question with a lot of, a lot of answer to it. Okay, Brian. I guess the next question comes in from Patrick. If a Christian goes to a brother or a sister, and this Christian is repenting of some wrongdoing against the brother or sister. Does that brother or sister have the scriptural right to refuse to forgive them personally in their own heart? Or should they scripturally be expected to forgive them under all circumstances, regardless of how they may feel personally? Interesting. In God's eyes, in God's word, do they, as a Christian, have a Christian right to not forgive and refuse the person who has gone to them personally and repented and asked them to forgive them, would not forgiving in this situation put them in danger of losing their soul? Whoa, that's an interesting one, Brian. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I could see how this would be, you know, like some might think, well, how could you not forgive them? You know, Jesus said to forgive them. But, you know, think about if you had like a family member that was murdered and how just horrible that would be to deal with in your life. And you have somebody that repents of it. You know, it might be easy to think, well, they don't deserve forgiveness. That was a horrific thing they did, you know, so it could be something like that. But, you know, we actually talked about this earlier as it relates to the principle of forgiveness that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 17. And just to refresh everybody's memory, Jesus said there, Luke 17, beginning in verse three, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, repent, you shall forgive him. So Jesus makes it very clear. We must forgive them. So to answer the first part of that question, yeah, it would be sinning. It would be wrong not to forgive them. You know, Jesus also, when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, takes it a step further and says, verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But verse 15, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so, you know, it can be very difficult, once again, if somebody's committed some horrific sin, not that we rank sins, but let's face it, murder, for instance, would be a pretty harsh one. We still must forgive them. Now, there's another element here, Jeff, where sometimes we may wonder if the person who repents or asks for our forgiveness is really sorry for what they've done. And there could be a variety of reasons we might question that, like how they apologize, or they just kind of, you know, quickly said, I, I, I'm sorry. And you wonder, well, did they really mean it? Well, once again, Jesus did not give us the authority to question someone's motives or to judge the sincerity of their repentance, I guess, unless you had some tangible thing that you could point out to them. But, you know, he just simply, as we just read, commanded us to forgive them. And I think we should just take assurance in the fact that God knows if they're sincere. And so let's just let him deal with that on the day of judgment and not burden ourselves to always wonder. Do your part. Let God do his part, I guess is what I would say, Jeff. So anyhow, that's how I'd answer that question. Yeah, and good answer. And in fact, let me add maybe a couple nuances. One is, and I've heard this within some religious groups, that you know you need to be forgiving. You need to forgive the sinner. Okay, that sounds good on the surface. Whether or not they repent. Yeah. So, you know, you hear of people being told, yes, you need to you need to forgive this person, like for example, you cited or you need to forgive this person who, you know, murdered some of your family members. Have they repented? No. But you have to forgive them. It's like, well, no. God made forgiveness conditional upon the person's repentance. Now, obviously, we shouldn't carry a grudge. You know, shouldn't be mean to them. But in terms of extending forgiveness, you're premature if they have not repented. Oh, by the way, God expects Christians to repent before he can forgive them of their sins. 
again, coming back to the once saved, always saved problem. So there was that nuance. You know, there's another nuance that says, okay, I can forgive you, but there may be circumstances where, you know, we want to take some extra care not to put you into the same situation that resulted in the sin to begin with. For example, you know, classic example, Bible class teacher, you know, falls into some sort of situation, you know, sexual temptation with the kids in the class, you know, horrific kind of sin, right, et cetera. Uh, comes to a state of repentance, expresses that repentance, we forgive them. Should we immediately put them right back into the class with the kids? Uh, I would tend to say, no, that's probably foolish because you don't, obviously, there's a weakness there. You would not want to continue to expose him to the same uh, you know, situation, for instance. So just as an example, so yes, we can repent or we can forgive, but there may be some, uh, you know, continued con uh, consequences, not the right word, uh, considerations, I guess is what I'm trying to say, given the the situation and not wanting to subject them to unnecessary temptation. So, Brian, anything else before we go to the next question? No, very good thoughts. Appreciate you adding that. Okay, Jeff, so the last question comes to us from Jenny. And Jenny says, I would like to mentor other women. In Titus 2, Paul states that the older women are to teach the younger women. Is this younger as in age or younger as in spiritual growth? She then asks, also, is this for all women or just Christian women? Every website says something different, and I'm looking for the truth. To be a Christian mentor, the sites refer to mentoring Christian women only. I'm confused and don't want to teach it wrong, nor be taught wrong. Any help on this will be greatly appreciated. Thank you. All right. So let's kind of decompose or, or take this apart or, or approach it from a couple different perspectives. First of all, Brian, I guess to get the context, can you go ahead and read Titus 2 verses 1 through 5? Here it says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So within this context, we got, you know, a contrast between older and younger. Uh, at least if you dig a little bit the, into the Greek, the, the older reference uh, is more to those who are quote-unquote aged, which tends to be, you know, physical, physical age, older. Um, however, interestingly, the term for younger can refer to an age or it can be referred to being newer. So, you know, if you generalize it a little bit, you know, those who are older physically, but hopefully with age comes a degree of experience maturity, etc., you know, should help and instruct and admonish those who are younger, both in age and experience. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 talks about babes in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says, Therefore lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and a number of other things, uh, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And so, you know, certainly normally people tend to become Christians when they're younger. Got it. But not always. I mean, some you may have like a 40 or 50 or, you know, 60-year-old who, you know, becomes a Christian and is basically a new babe in Christ. Not very knowledgeable, not very experienced, etc. So you have to kind of take both age and maturity and experience, you know, together. So as we see within the context of Titus chapter 2, you know, we see that Paul is referring basically to Christians, you know, men and women, younger and older. So, you know, is, is this age, uh, you know, younger, older, restricted just to age, physical age, number of years you've been alive? Well, to some degree, but also by implication, uh, some degree of spiritual maturity or, or lack of spiritual maturity, etc., uh, and in general, we're talking Christians. So, you know, basically we're talking about, you know, Christians counseling, encouraging, you know, fellow Christians, you know, from the same quote unquote rule book, you know, from the Bible, you know, certainly does not preclude us from trying to teach or counsel or mentor 
non-Christians. So, I mean, fundamentally, can a Christian woman who has some degree of maturity and experience, you know, counsel, you know, Christian women who are younger in age? Sure. More babes in Christ? Sure. Can this Christian woman, you know, go out and, you know, mentor or uh, counsel, you know, non-Christians? Sure. Now, there is one nuance here that she doesn't ask about, but I just thought I'd add as well, that there are some limitations or restrictions on women when it does come to religious teaching, mentoring, uh, uh, exercising authority, and that is when it involves men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 does indicate there are some limitations. Uh, specifically, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And then he goes on to provide, you know, the basis of that position. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, Christian women, uh, you know, mentoring other women, uh, certainly available, you know, provided they have the, you know, the maturity, experience, you know, sound, uh, sound understanding, grounding in, in, you know, what the Bible has to say, etc. Right? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing up, you know, the difference between age and maturity, because, you know, no doubt somebody who's older, you would hope that they are mature. But as you pointed out, it doesn't necessarily always mean that, right? They could be somebody that's older and immature, or they could be somebody that's younger and mature. So, yeah, those kind of things, they, they kind of go together, don't they, as, as far as when we talk about spiritual maturity. True, indeed. Now, I think that pretty much takes us to the, the end of the podcast, you know, questions about Christianity, part two. A lot of good material, a lot of excellent questions that are submitted to the website. I really appreciate the, you know, folks that are out there on the internet, to include potentially our listeners, you know, submitting questions on, you know, Christianity or living a faithful life or you know, finding a faithful church, you know, even basics like, you know, how to be saved. So, uh, again, I, it's, a good, it's a good topic for today, Brian. Yeah, it was. And as we touched on during the podcast, you know, some of these subjects like benevolence and war and, and so forth can be pretty involved. And so we certainly encourage you to study these subjects a little bit deeper and to help you do that. On our website, under the topics section, we have several questions that have been answered and even just articles that have been written on a lot of the material that we touched on today. So for instance, if you go to the letter C, you can find more material on church benevolence, on just church in general, Christianity, and Christian living. If you go to the letter D, you can read more about denominationalism, F for forgiveness, M for marriage, S for sin, T for temptations, and then under the letter W, we've got a couple. One, a really good article written about war and the war question and women leaders. And then a couple podcasts that we'll reference as well on our podcast page. We have two different podcasts on giving. Uh, one of them covering specifically the proper use of the church treasury. And then we also have two podcasts on forgiveness. So feel free to take advantage of what material is there. And then as we like to say, you know, certainly do your own study, compare it to what God's word says, and apply it to your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.